Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today has worked around the world in private and nonprofit sectors, and in doing so has gained insights around the different needs and how to create win-win collaborations, improving both corporate bottom lines and people's lives. This leader's impact is a wonderful example of how better business can mean a better society. Her experience includes serving as executive director of the UK-based Children's Investment Fund Foundation, focused on health, education, and climate. Advising then New York State Governor Mario Cuomo, and over the last decade, roles with UBS as CEO of its Optimist Foundation and global head of social impact. At the UBS Optimist Foundation, she re-engineered the strategy for better commercial and social impact, resulting in 20 times growth from $10 million to more than $200 million. Very recently, she was compelled to build on her UBS work and co-found a new marketplace for social outcomes, which we'll hear more about. Meet my kindred spirit, also from upstate New York, the president of Outcomes X, Phyllis Curlander Costanza. Phyllis, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you for having me, and I love being on this with a fellow Rochesterian. Yeah, it's a total treat. I was thrilled. I can always tell the upstate vibe. You know, it's an immediate love fest. So um, thrilled to have you. I should mention for listeners several other hats that you wear. You're board chair of Educate Girls USA, board member of the International Center for Research on Women, member of the Council of Foreign Relations, and senior advisor to the Education Outcomes Fund for Africa and the Middle East. So, Phyllis, you really bring us a global lens, and I'm really excited for us to learn from you, particularly your new venture. But before we delve into that, I really appreciate if you would please help listeners just get to know you, your own roots, uh, the unique path that's been your journey, both personally and professionally. Sure. Well, let's see. It started, obviously, in upstate New York. I was born in Ithaca, but my family moved to Rochester. It was between that and Manhattan, and my parents had never lived in a house before, so they thought, let's move here, and we can raise our family in a house. And uh, so we lived there for in the same house for 18 years in Rochester, New York, and my parents were very political, uh, very active at the time um, in democratic politics. My mother was very active in the ERA movement and um, campaigning for it. And they would drag me with them to all of these rallies. I would do phone banks. My father ran for public office. So I would hand out literature in our primarily Republican neighborhood. He was the first Democrat district attorney in Monroe County. Uh, And so, as you can imagine, I got a lot of doors slammed in my face as a young child. Uh, 
So I think because of that, I ha- I grew up with a sense of responsibility, social responsibility, but also very thick skin. And I remember once we were at the um, at the Monroe County Fair. I don't know if you ever went to that. And we were standing there. That's a big place to campaign. And handing I was handing out literature, and I had so many people do the nastiest things throw the literature back at me. I'm a little kid at the time. One guy spit on me. Um, people would yell, I can't read and and rip it up and just really nasty things for a little kid who's you know campaigning for her dad and really didn't understand much about what it meant to even be a prosecutor. Um, but, um, but it was a great experience. And um, the other thing I grew up with is a sense... Um, of responsibility. So as a young, when I was five years old, me and my best friend, Mindy Friedman, we went door to door knocking on all of our neighbors' doors. And we said, we'll do anything for a nickel. And we, they would, you know, the neighbors, of course, found that very amusing. I think now, uh, I think people would misinterpret that, but um, we would clean people's houses. We were five, so we, I'm sure we didn't do a good job, but, you know, granted, we only made a nickel. Um, and I think that was the start of my desire to be an entrepreneur. That's amazing. Can you even imagine? Did you go door to door knocking on doors? Yep. I mean, you know, I grew up in a small town, as you know, and Everybody knew everybody. So, you know, they're like, oh, there's Phyllis Kurlander. Look at her and Mindy are here saying they'll do anything for a nickel. You know, we they knew our parents. We knew everybody. So, wow. Yeah. Did you? So this is very, very fascinating as a kid handing out literature and, and being somewhat abused. And I'm just wondering, did your parents stand on the sidelines seeing this? Did you tell this? Did you share what was happening to you? Yeah, you know, what's interesting. That's a really interesting question. I think they just thought, hey, you know, that's that's life. Like, you know, nobody hurt me. People were rude. You know, it was kind of before the day when when parents jumped in and fought their kids battles. So I'm really happy they didn't fight the battle for me. They they really I mean, my dad was busy doing his own thing. And I think they found it somewhat amusing and probably somewhat appalling, but they never, ever stepped in to fight my battles, which I am so thankful for. Wow. And did you really, have siblings? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I did. I have um, a brother who's three years younger and a sister who's 12 months older. And I mean, I just remember my brother also grew up very tough. He, um, I remember once he went knocking on a neighbor's door. He was probably about four years old. Went knocking on the neighbor's door to say, do you want to play? And the kid said, no, we don't want to play with you. They were mean. Kids were mean back then. I mean, when when you're little, kids I, can still be mean now. But um, so he came back and he didn't get upset. He just, I remember him telling my mom, no, they said they didn't want to play with me. And I could see my mom, you know, her heart probably was broken. I felt terrible for my brother, but he didn't seem to mind. And about an hour later, he said, I'm going to go back to Josh Cohn's house and see if they'll play with me. And I remember my mother saying, but you just went there an hour ago and they said they didn't want to play with you. And he said, I know, but that was an hour ago. Maybe they changed their mind. (laughs) And I thought, that's awesome. That is great. And I still remember that. 
And I think our parents raised us so that we would stand up for ourselves and don't give up. You know, that was kind of their motto. And my sister is the same way. Um, My sister's the oldest. She was the overachiever in the family and, uh, you know, always had to, got great grades, was very studious, got all the right jobs, went to law school, you know, did all, did all those things before either one of us even thought about it. My brother and I even thought about it. So what was the dynamic like? Were you like best buddies? Did you get on each other's nerves? No, we fought like cats and dogs. It was awful. And now I feel terrible about it. (laughs) And my brother will remind me of things we did to him. And then I'll remind uh, things that we did to him that were mean. And I'll remind him of things we did to him that were kind. (laughs) And he'll, he'll say, I remember just recently, we, this, this might be actually too crude to go on your podcast, so feel free to take it out. But we had a lot. My dad used to always um, have politicians come over to our house whenever they were campaigning in upstate New York, and they always stayed with us. So we always had to cram in one of the kids' rooms. So we were all sleeping in my brother's double bed. He was three years old. My sister and I were whatever we were, you know, six and seven. And he kept farting. So we put a we put a bar of soap in his underwear thinking that it wouldn't smell as bad. And he remembers that. And I said, yeah, but you know what else we did? We were doing somersaults and giving you kisses, seeing if we could keep kissing you, how many times we could kiss you without you waking up. And so he'll say, oh, thank God, because I'm still tormented by the bar of soap. Your little brother like a little doll to you guys. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's crazy. So, uh, school were you? Uh, you were your sister was the studious one. Did you feel like you didn't have to fill such big shoes because she paved the way? She paved the way. Yeah, I was not nearly as studious. I found high school relatively easy, um, and there were I. I really liked math. I, I liked. Uh, I didn't like science, but I loved my math class. Math and English were my favorite classes. But I didn't, I never spent as much time studying as I probably should have. And, but I had a good time. And, and then I really didn't buckle down until I was in graduate school. And that's when I fully appreciated um, what I could learn. And I went to graduate school at the Kennedy School and I felt like the world had just opened up to me. I was meeting the most incredible people. And, you know, they said rising tide rises all boats. And that is so true. I never felt smarter in my life. I never felt more motivated and more inspired in my entire life. And that was that really changed the trajectory of my life going to the Kennedy School. And how did that come to be? Were your parents uh, seeding that at all? Or did that just pop in as a? No, it was, it was actually, I, wa- I went to Colorado to visit a friend who was working in a place called Rocky Mountain Institute, and she was working with this guy she introduced me to, and he was translating a document from Russian into English, but when I, he was also, he wasn't making any money, but he was doing that at Rocky Mountain in- Institute, it was an energy efficiency document, and he was also working as a carpenter. 
Um, and I grew up in a Jewish family in uh, upstate New York. And my parents are from Brooklyn. They grew up in apartments. I mean, if if they hung a a picture on the wall themselves, they would demand to be get in to get into the Jewish Mechanics Hall of Fame. Like my family couldn't do anything. So I see this really handsome guy in a tool belt who speaks Russian. And I thought, oh my God, this is incredible. And he was on his way to go to Harvard for graduate school. And so we started dating right away. And I thought, wow, he's going there. Maybe I could go there. Uh, And at the time I was living in Albany, New York, working for the governor. And I remember telling my boss, who was the the chief of staff to the governor at the time, a guy named Drew Zambelli, that I wanted to go to graduate school at the Kennedy School. And would he help me and write me a letter of recommendation? And he said, Phyllis, everybody in graduate school wants your job. Why would you want to do that? And I did think about it, but I thought, you know what, I, 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 need, to, I need to do this. So I applied and magically got in and um, it, yeah, changed the course of my life. That is phenomenal. So once you're there, so the from a career planning, I'm curious. And was your mother, did your mother work? I was kind of wondering your own thoughts on, you know, career life. Yes, both my parents worked. Um, while we were growing up, my mother will always remind me that she didn't work for our first eight years of life. But, you know, we forget those years. Um, So what I recall is she was working. She worked first as an educator and she taught primarily children who had um, physical and mental disabilities. She then went into administration. And I don't know if you remember in Rochester, BOCES, but she was an administrator there and she taught there, which is a vocational training program for kids who might not be destined for university. Uh, And then she worked for the New York State Department of Developmental Disabilities. Uh, And so she and, and she retired probably in her late 50s, but she worked pretty much throughout my entire life. So she was a great role model for me. And she always told us never, ever rely on anybody. Always make sure that you have a job, that you are independent, and that that you don't have to count on somebody to give you money or give you an allowance. That um, And that's something she instilled in us as a very young age. So it never even occurred to me not to work. Nice. That's really fabulous. So out of uh, the Kennedy School, share the first role you took? So after the Kennedy School, um, I had crazy loans. Like at the time, it seemed like money that I would never be able to pay back. And um, my husband and I loved, we loved the outdoors. We loved to hike and ski. And we actually chose the place we wanted to live. We went to Colorado and we moved, we went to Denver and I mean, I ended up working for a consulting firm and I did that for a couple of years, um, but it wasn't a great place at the time. This is back in the early 90s to launch a career. We really both were interested in working internationally. So we moved. He got a job with the World Bank and we moved to Kiev, Ukraine. And then I got a job there working for a USAID contract and we were there for about two years And my job was to train journalists how to report on privatization. And I remember I would call daily meetings at um, 10 a.m. And everybody told me that's too early. Don't do that. 
And I was working with journalists and, you know, journalists are, at least they were back then, were notorious for, um, for, for enjoying the drink. And people would come in and, you know, everybody had something in their coffee. The whole place smelled like booze. I mean, it was just, it was quite an experience. You know, here I am, this young person trying to cha- train seasoned journalists um, about how to report on privatization. It was it was humbling, I must say, and and they didn't really care, <laughs> frankly. Um, I mean, they they reported on it, explained how the system worked. Um, these were bright people, and um, so it was quite an interesting experience. The whole experience of living in Ukraine at the time in the early '90s it was the Wild West. You know, soon after the wall came down. And business opportunities were popping up all over. So it was a really crazy time when there was lots of new businesses being started. There were a lot of Americans and a lot of international workers there at the time because, you know, all these governments were trying to get in and influence the direction of the government and the economy. And so it was an exciting time to be there. Wow. So the husband at the World Bank, was this the handsome guy with the tool belt? This is the handsome guy with the tool belt, the same guy. Um, he had taken off the tool belt for many years, and I have yet to see him in another tool belt, frankly. <laughs> I love it. I think that is spectacular. So his language, he speaks, how many languages he speak? And I'm curious how many languages you speak. Um, well, he he is a great linguist. He is um, He speaks fluent Russian. His German is really good. And he is teaching himself Italian now. Me, I speak poor German. Um, that's what I speak, and English, as you can tell. But um, no, his, and he learned Ukrainian while we were living there. He's got amazing language skills. And it opens up a whole new world. You know, living in Ukraine without speaking Ukrainian, or at the time, a lot of speak, people spoke Russian there. It wasn't as taboo as it probably is now, but, um, you know, you, most of his friends didn't speak a word of English. So he really got to immerse himself in the culture. Wow. How, how is it for you folks with the current affairs and having spent time there? I'm just wondering emotionally what that's like. It's tragic just to see, you know, the street we lived on getting bombed, the neighborhoods, our friends, and actually, um, well, I guess we'll talk about it, but in my new venture, uh, I am so committed to helping um, in Ukraine, which is what we're doing now. And I'm so glad I have the opportunity to do something. Yeah, we'll come back to that for sure. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering, as you folks are working along, you know, in, in these very purpose-driven types of roles, right, public sector, uh, social sector, how you found the, and I don't want to use politics in a negative way, but just, you know, advancing and, and moving up through the ranks, um, compare and contrast a little bit of the private sector experience that you've had. Um, <laughs> well, so I've worked, I worked in government, as you know, and also in large corporations. I've worked for foundations. So I've worked across multiple sectors and working in New York State and in New York City. So I worked 
I worked in New York City, New York State government and politics. I was actually a political appointee, um, which which is very different than being a civil servant. And because of that, I did a lot of political work. I was the governor's Manhattan representative. And um, if you can survive New York State and New York City politics, you've got very thick skin. And that was a really great training ground for me. And Mario Cuomo was incredibly demanding. I mean, he was so brilliant. Nothing ever got past him. He would challenge everything you said to him. So it really put me on my toes. I mean, it was constantly had to make sure that what I was saying was smart. He was so into, I was so young at the time. I was in my, I think I was 25 or 24. And I found him so intimidating. And I thought, what could I possibly tell this man that he doesn't know? And so I really immersed myself in the politics to understand what was going on in Manhattan. What were the issues people cared about? Um, And so I could share with him some things that perhaps he didn't know. Uh, And that was a great experience. Um, But, you know, talk about politics with big P and little P, it was all over there. And it was um, it was a it was a tough environment because in government, you are, you know, your currency is your influence. You're not making a lot of money. And so what you strive for in that environment is is influence. You know, you want to influence policy. You want to influence the political actors. You want to influence the politics. So um, that was that was a brutal game, I must say. Um, But it prepared me for getting into the corporate world, um, which, frankly, is equally as political. It's just not as blatant. Um, It's much more subtle. Um, it's, um, I wouldn't say it's dirtier politics, but, um, you know, you, you got to know what you're dealing with and every country is different and every culture is different. And so the, the politics of working at a large financial institution in Switzerland, where I lived for 10 years is very different than the politics of working at the exact same company in the United States. And so it's really important to understand, you know, how, I mean, politics is learning how to get things done, basically, with a small P. And it's important to understand, you know, you don't have to play a nasty political game, but it also means understanding who do you need to influence to get something done. And that's the important part of the political game that everybody needs to know how to play in order to be successful, And it doesn't have to be mean or nasty. It's just, who do I need to get to? Who do I need to influence? Who do I need to befriend, et cetera? So, Phyllis, this is so fascinating. I love how articulate you are about this. Do you recall boo-boos that you might have made? I'm really curious how you, you know, that takes a huge amount of emotional, social intelligence um, and I'm just wondering if you have any funny, I, I think in hindsight, hopefully stories about how you learned this. Oh God, I made so many mistakes. Um, so, well, the very first mistake I learned was to be prepared. I went to, it was probably my first week on the job and I didn't, when I was working for the governor and then I'll tell a story about 
working for um, at, at a financial institution in Switzerland. So I was asked to represent the governor at this meeting at City Hall. And they said, no, you don't have to say anything. You just stand there. They just want to know that there's a governor rep there. I had no idea about what the political agenda was, what was on the ballot. You know, I was brand new. And so somebody said, oh, the governor's representative is here. Phyllis, maybe you can tell us about this bill. It was a criminal justice bill. And my heart sank. My face turned bright red. I didn't know anything about it. And there were probably 300 people in the room. And um, and I just deflected it very poorly. And I will never forget that that moment still tortures me. And I always wonder who was in that room thinking this woman's an idiot. So that was my very first lesson. No matter where I go, what I'm doing, I'm always prepared in case somebody asks me a question. <laughs> um, but that's not so much politics. That's a mistake I made. But in Switzerland, God, I've made so many mistakes. So the Swiss don't like confrontation. And, um, you know, as, as a New Yorker, I had lived in New York City for a long time. And, and I grew up in a household that did not mind confrontation at all. Um, and, you know, I would listen to my father in particular on the phone, uh, especially when he was district attorney and, you know, really foul language. <laughs> uh, you know, I learned all my best curse words from him. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, what, we weren't afraid to use those words and, you know, to call somebody out. But that did not go over well at all in Switzerland. Um, it, it's a country that um, prides itself on being neutral. And everything there is done by consensus. It is not done at all by bullying. And not, not that I was ever a bully, but if I didn't like somebody or I didn't agree with them, I said it, figuring, oh, I'll tell them I don't agree. You're wrong. Da, 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 and we'll get over it and then we'll move on. Um, that's not how it worked there. And it was a, you know, and, and it took me probably a year to recover from some initial early mistakes uh, and then I had to kind of reset and um, and kind of make new friends and start again. Uh, but yeah, I made I've made so many mistakes. And the key is just you know, like my brother did when he was a little kid, just dust yourself up off and go back and try again. You know, that's that's um, that's the only way to get through it. Amazing. How did you, you know, I think when we navigate in these corporations, how did you, you know, find your way to head up the foundation? You know, I'm just curious how you, you know, charted a path. Because I think lots of times um, for folks in bigger organizations, there's a lot of great opportunity there, but one needs to be savvy about uh, reaching out, opening doors, et cetera. Well, I was working, I was living in Switzerland and set up the office in Switzerland for the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. And it's a foundation started by um, two incredibly generous philanthropic people, um, friends of mine, actually, from graduate school. So I helped them start the foundation. Um, and then I was based in Switzerland. And um, while I was working for them, I got breast cancer. And um, and that was really an eye opener. I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. It had metastasized into my lymph nodes. And so I went through some pretty serious chemotherapy, radiation, um, surgery, you know, every means of torture you can think of. 
And it really made me reflect on what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And I was really trying to burn the candle both ends. I was traveling all over the world working for them. Um, I had young kids at the time. And, you know, I was going back and forth to London because it was ba- they were based in London. I was in Switzerland. And I just thought I need, um, you know, after about a year of recuperation from that, and I recovered, and I'm doing great, I thought I need a change. So um, I just started... I just kind of put the word out in Switzerland to just a few friends that I, I need a change. I, I It's time for me to do something different. I think this is a sign that, you know, it's, it's time. And I got um, called by a headhunter for the UBS job. So I interviewed and ended up getting the job. And when I got there, um, I learned that they were actually wanted to shut down the foundation. I was hired as CEO of the foundation. And my very first board meeting, the board chair tells me, look, Phyllis, I'm going to step down and we're really thinking about shutting this down. And I said, give me one year. Give me one year to prove that this is going to be an asset to the bank. And um, he did, and we turned it around, and it was navigating a lot of politics. Um, you know, a lot of people wanted to shut it down for a variety of reasons, and I thought it could be a core differentiator for the bank, which is the largest wealth management firm, and, and it's a foundation that's focused on helping clients with their philanthropy. And so I said, we can be a world-class organization. Let's start with the board. So we looked at the board and we said, we need a world-class board, whatever that means, but they need to be globally renowned experts. So we completely revised the board. We completely revised our strategy. Um, We set up foundations then over the years in eight different countries. And we grew from what was a $10 million foundation to about a $200 million foundation by focusing very, very clearly on doing the absolute best, hiring the best experts, um, getting the best board. And I was really, really obsessed with hiring great staff. And the staff, the leadership team that we hired ended up staying with me for the, you know, almost the entire time I was there. And the thing I'm most proud of about that job is that they all stepped up into new roles when I left. And so we hired, you know, we transitioned the leadership team from the existing staff. And that's something that I'm really proud of, um, that I was able to develop a team who came in relatively junior and are now senior leaders at the bank and um, at the foundation. That's spectacular. And thank you for sharing the health uh, and cancer period. And I did not know that. So um, not to take you back to to a dark time, but do you recall, I mean, you're running around and um, burning up both ends and, you know, kind of how did you, you know, because I think it's, it's a lot, you know, going through all that treatment and how do you just turn it around, you know, I mean, because the just getting through all the surgery and, and chemo and all that is a whole. Yeah. Uh, God, my family was such great support. Um And I actually went back to the United States to get treatment initially. Um, But I, I ended up going back to Switzerland where the treatment was much more personalized. Um, For instance, in getting chemotherapy, I was getting it in Atlanta. It was a huge hospital. I would go into this room It was a huge, like almost like an auditorium room. And you would sit down in a Barco lounge 
and there would be three other chairs around you and a TV in front blaring. And this is like kind of, nobody really was using headphones then. And so you've got probably about 40 people in there, mostly older, very sick, you know, people with no hair. Everybody just looks like they're on death's doorstep, including myself. And you're looking around at them, they're blaring their TVs and and you're getting, you know, your toxic chemicals intravenously. And I went to Switzerland then and said, I can't, like, this is so depressing. And I called it, when I went to Switzerland and got my chemo, I called it the Chemochino Lounge. I would go there. It was on the banks of the Rhine River. So I had a beautiful view. The doctor asked me about my side, you know, the side effects of the chemo, how I was feeling. Like, no doctor ever asked me that or a nurse in the U.S. And they would give me uh, cappuccino with a piece of chocolate while I was getting my chemo. And it was just... I mean, it was an unpleasant experience, but it was made much more pleasant by getting individual care. Um, and friends were really supportive, like, the, you know, Jamie and Chris, who founded Children's Investment Fund Foundation. They hired me a chef to cook me really healthy foods. And, um, you know, other friends got me a trainer. I could I could barely walk, but, you know, I had a trainer help me do some exercises. So um, and um and, and I remember when I was started my chemo and you don't start losing your hair until about the second or third um, round. And so once you start losing your hair, it's coming out in clumps. You go, I, I went to a salon to get my head shaved and I had a good friend of mine came with me and she was shaving my head and there was a woman in there and she said, I know what you're going through and I've gone through it and you're going to get through it. And it's not the worst thing in life. It is, you're going to get through it. And when she said, it's not the worst thing in life at my, at that point, I thought this is the worst thing I've ever been through in my life. And I thought, what could be worse? I mean, obviously there's things that could be far worse. Um, And she's right. It's not the worst thing. I got through it and she just gave me hope. And then I remember like I would, I didn't wear a wig. I just, I felt like a fraud wearing a wig. I don't know why. I mean, I have no, nothing against anybody who wears a wig, but it just, I don't know why I felt uncomfortable with it. So I wore a scarf. Um, and so it was really clear that I was going through chemo. I had no eyebrows or eyelashes or hair. And I remember just everywhere I went, people were so supportive. Um, they just would say, hey, you're going to get through this. And yeah, I did. That's so amazing. That's really, really amazing. So I imagine that this then it then became easier to do the self care and just um, focus on your health. Yeah, yeah. I just um, yeah, I did, and I really I I hardly worked. I mean, I I worked from home and. Um, and I really focused on getting healthy again. And it takes a long time after you go through chemo and surgery and radiation. It takes a good year after that to feel normal again. Um, and it it did. It took a very long time. Um, and I was impatient. And then the cancer came back about five years after. Um, but I got through that and um, as well. And, and the second time actually wasn't as bad. I thought, you know what? I've done this once before. I'm going to get through this. Um, and thankfully it wasn't as bad at all. It was just one node. I mean, I had to have more surgery, but, um, but it was done and I'm cancer free for, um, almost eight years, maybe 10 years now. 
That's fantastic. That is awesome. Phyllis, talk about your relationship with your kids through this. Um, so my, you know, my kids were young and they say they don't really remember it, which I'm glad about. Um, I didn't want them to be scared. I didn't want them to think I was going to die. Um, but we all, we went to my parents' house. They were living in outside of Atlanta on a lake. And so the kids were there and, you know, it was a kid's playground. So they were having a great time. My brother and sister were amazing. They took the kids on weekends and they did so much with them. My husband took off three months of work to stay with me um, in Georgia. And, you know, the family was incredible. And it's like, you know, I mean, they always say your family's always there for you. And they are. I mean, it was it was really they just they helped me through it. And the kids were um, were well supported. You know, I couldn't I couldn't give much at the time, but but they were really well supported. And I have a great relationship with my kids. I mean, my son, my kids are 24 and 25. They both live in New York City. And um, my son was sick for the past week. And I love that he came home to be home, to be here in the apartment with my husband and I. And I work with our daughter, my daughter. She was the first employee that we hired. So I have a great relationship with her. I mean, she's just fun. She's fun. She's funny. We're, we're very similar. We get along great. I remember my dad saying, ooh, that's a mistake to hire a family member. Um, but it is so not a mistake. She's so smart. And yeah, I just, I love working with her. And I love that my son is here too. He's also working in a startup and we have a really close family. Fabulous. I love, love, love it. Okay, Phyllis, take us to the, this current venture and, you know, let's gush about this because it sounds so cool. So uh, help listeners understand what you and your team are creating. We are building something that I am so excited about. It's a marketplace to buy and sell social outcomes. And what we're doing is we are building on a registry that my partner, Jason Saul, has developed called the Impact Genome Registry. And that registry has coded um, outcomes for 2 million projects. So 2 million projects have been uploaded into this system. And outcomes have been identified for each of them. And, and they're, they're, of these 2 million projects, there's about 140 outcomes across a number of categories. So including, for instance, education, healthcare, criminal justice, arts and culture, youth development, et cetera. So an outcome might be, for instance, education. An outcome is, did children learn? That's one outcome. A different outcome, did children grade, progress to the next grade? So we have data in the database now that will tell us what is the average cost to improve learning outcomes for a child in whatever name your city um, over a 12-month period. So we know, I'm going to make up the numbers here, but we know based on all of the data we have that the average cost for instance to get a homeless person off the street is, again, a made-up number, but let's say it's $15,000 per year. It's probably a lot more than that. Um, But we, we know the cost and we know all of the elements of all of these programs. So now we can trade these on a marketplace, kind of like carbon credits are traded. So if a company or a government wants to buy outcomes, they would come to our marketplace, say, okay, I want to buy a thousand 
homeless credits, let's say. That means they want to get a thousand people off the street in San Francisco. They would pay for those outcomes. We would then verify that the outcome has occurred. We would issue tokens to the nonprofit that got the homeless people off the street to represent each token represents one person off the street. And then after a 12 month period, whoever bought those outcomes would get the tokens that they could then use to report to rating agencies about their ESG score, their environmental social governance score, or a government could use them um, to demonstrate to its constituents that they are focused on impact and outcomes, not just activities. Because the way funding has gone out right now is based on activity. So let's stick with education, for instance. How many textbooks did you distribute? How many teachers did you train? How many schools did you build? Those are all activities, and they may or may not be correlated with learning outcomes. But in schools, what really matters is, did a child learn? Did a child progress to the next grade? These are the things that matter, not whether or not the school you know, had a fancy auditorium or not. And, and so we need to start focusing and getting donors to focus on outcomes. So we're hoping that we will be the marketplace for corporations and governments to buy social outcomes and for social entrepreneurs, whether they're nonprofits or social enterprises, they can sell their outcomes on our platform. Right now, it costs nonprofits $20 for every $100 they raise. And so only the big organizations can afford the fancy fundraisers or the complicated evaluation schemes. And so we view this as a great equalizer where smaller nonprofits will get credit for doing great work, not just for having a great fundraiser. So that's what we're building. Oh, my God. I am blown away. This is just what the world needs, you know, like progress, not just activity. And we know, you know, it's important for the good work to be getting done. The uh, Say more about, you know, so this is one of those things where, oh, so great. Now, I appreciate how it's not that people are against change. But people could perceive, Phyllis, kind of a win-lose sort of things. So talk to us about, you know, helping educate the stakeholder so that people do see this as a win-win. Yeah. And and one, th- one thing that's important is positioning this. We're not positioning this as we're being great disruptors. We're going to change the system. It's broken. That's not at all the case. But we need to make progress. And that's, that's what's important here. We need to make progress because if you look at the money that's being spent to deliver social outcomes, $72 trillion every year goes into trying to deliver social outcomes, whether it's from government, from um, funds focused just on the S and ESG or philanthropy or corporate spend on social impacts. But if you look at progress on the sustainable development goals, which are the goals that have been codified by the UN as global targets for the world, progress on the SDGs has remained relatively flat despite this huge spend. So we see this as a win-win for all. It's a win-win for, um, for constituents, For taxpayers, we want to make sure our taxpayer money is going to things that actually work. In the U.S. alone, we spend hundreds of billions of dollars 
from local government, state, and federal government delivering human service programs, but we have knowledge of the impact of less than 1% of that. So it is, I mean, it is just a huge potential waste of money if we don't know if the money's actually working. So that's so that's one thing on the on the government side. We see that as a huge win. And also for, you know, for equality, most funding is going to the big nonprofits, the ones with all the money, the international organizations, and the smaller ones don't even get a shot at getting some of that money. So now if we focus on impact and outcomes, every organization has an equal chance at getting the money. The best organizations are sometimes those community-based organizations that really understand the context in their communities. And now they have a shot at getting the money. And so, you know, I see this as a huge win. And and my question to smaller nonprofits is, why wouldn't you do this? You know, if, if you have potential to raise additional funding, then come on board. We want to work with you. Fantastic. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you because, you know, in my previous life, I did a lot of integration work across companies. And so since you have the privilege of the public, the private, the citizen sector lens and those different organizations, perhaps you could just go through and and share with listeners, you know, perhaps like a bright spot about that space, but something you'd love to see change because it'd just be great to tap into your, you know, uh, decades of experience. Yeah, so so I think a bright spot right now is that um, you know for all the tragedy that came out of um, uh, out of COVID, out of the tragic murder of George Floyd, there is an acknowledgement now that companies have a huge role to play in addressing issues of equality. Um, and in in progressing, in, in making progress on social issues. And because of that, companies, consumers um, have an expectation that companies will focus on social issues. So I think from a, from a consumer and from a private corporate perspective, there's a much bigger interest in focusing on actual social outcomes and delivering uh, progress, delivering, uh, you know, change, but delivering to ease suffering. Let me put it that way. Um, And then from a government perspective, I think it's going to be challenging because it'll probably to get governments to purchase outcomes instead of going through the regular procurement process. You know, why do some nonprofits get selected to to, um, deliver and others don't? I, I, I mean, it's it's random. You know, why are we really choosing the best organizations? Who knows? So I, I think it's going to take probably legislation to get government to purchase outcomes, but we're going to push that. We're definitely going to going to pursue that because I think there is a huge opportunity there. Um, so I think the philanthropic sector, I think individual philanthropies, my, my hypothesis is they, they might want more of the emotional connection to the nonprofit and the, and the interaction. So they might not be keen to buy outcomes in what might be perceived as disintermediating their relationship with the nonprofit. Um, so that's, that's not our target market, but I could be wrong. And, and once the platform is up and running, we will make sure that we have, that we create an emotional experience for the buyer as well, so that we've got video content of how the change is being achieved. How does that affect human lives? What's happening on the ground? All of those stories will need to be told. 
Yeah, this is spectacular. I wanted to loop back because you had mentioned a bit about the Ukraine, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about how your Outcomes X uh, might specifically be of benefit there. Well, I'm really excited that the very first trade that we're working on is to is for Ukraine. Um, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned, but 99.7% of all humanitarian aid funding for Ukraine is going to children and families and people who have fled the country to larger international NGOs. And there's a desperate need to bring money into the country to help children and families who have stayed behind. And children are suffering tremendous mental health um, issues and um, have stopped learning because now they're getting electricity a couple hours a day. How can they possibly learn when they're afraid to go outside and go to school? So what we're doing is our very first trade is, is designed to deliver two outcomes. One is improved mental health, and the second one is improved learning outcomes. And we didn't have data on what it costs to deliver these outcomes in a war zone. So we're going out to Ukraine. We're working with a number of people I used to work with way back when I lived there. And they're recruiting nonprofits on the ground. We translated everything into Ukrainian. We've done webinars that have been simultaneously translated as well. Uh, in English and Ukrainian, and they're submitting their data in Ukrainian and we're translating it. So we're really trying to make it uh, to enable the smaller local nonprofits to get this funding. And we have a buyer lined up who will be purchasing these outcomes. So we're just in the process now of onboarding the nonprofits and we're really excited about it. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that finally this money is um, going to go to the local community-based organizations working on the ground who really understand the situation there. Ah, my heart is so bright because of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that, Phyllis. That's awesome. Uh, let us, we have to segue to the say it skillfully part of the show. So might there be a tough conversation you had or have, and we can unpack that for listeners. Oh God, I've had so many tough conversations. I'll never forget the very first person I had to fire. I cried. Um, so that did not go well. Suffice it to say, I felt so terrible and I still have to, you know, I mean, obviously when you work in the corporate sector, you have to, you know, you, you go through a lot of this. Um, so I would say, you know what, conversations that I find really difficult is I like to give feedback to people right away. And um, so let's say if I heard somebody give a speech and I wanted to give them feedback and I thought the speech was mediocre, maybe they didn't tell enough stories, they were reading from a script and it just wasn't engaging. And I want to give people honest feedback. So I had a situation where this was the case. I saw one of my colleagues give a speech, and it was really kind of boring. Um, she read directly from a script. She didn't look up a lot. There was no stories in there. And so I wanted to I, – I didn't want to burst her bubble. I wanted to encourage her and tell her some bright spots. But I couldn't think of – I, I couldn't think of what to say. And so I didn't give her the feedback, which was such a mistake. So I would love to role model with you how I could have given her that great feedback. Oh, I love this. And this is so high on everyone's list. I know listeners are nodding their heads. So the thing is to first, you know, it's kind of the relationship of Phyllis with Phyllis. It's like, oh, what's going on for you? Right. So let's say, oh, I don't want to offend 
you know, I don't want to offend her. Um, but just getting whole with like what's going on for you. And if it is a negative or fear to be able to like exhale that and let it go and then realize, you know, here you are and you want to be helpful. If you are to help someone succeed and to think about yourself as a real partner and an ally and coming in with that energy versus the, you know, with a stick, you know, oh my God, that wasn't so bad. Right. So you, you in, engage with that energy saying, oh, Stella, that was, you know, really appreciate and just acknowledge something genuinely about what, what went right. Right. So super. How do you think that went? You're right. So, you know, I noticed some things that I think could really help you amp it up. Would you like for us to talk about it? So that's giving Stella a chance to pull it from you. Right. So that's first. The first thing is, you don't want to be unsolicited. Hey, I know I love it. You know, Phyllis, you're really so helpful. I love it. Okay, great. And so understanding her experience, you know, I'm just going to let me just throw something out in terms of um, you know, storytelling. To what extent do you think you were just telling stories? Well, so you just start to go back and forth. And instead of saying you didn't tell stories, you can say, you know, one thing that I'd love to see you do is bring in some stories. So think about the aspiration, the credit Marshall Goldsmith, the feed forward. This is what I'd love to see you do. And again, you may see half a dozen things, but let's find one thing, right? To give that person a win that they can think about. But then you've opened up this partnership and in the future you could go back and she may even say, well, what else did you see? So, well, here's another thing. Let me pause there. How's that landing? Oh, I love that. I like saying like, I would love to see you do this. I think that is really positive. It's not discouraging. Um, yeah, I think yeah. It's, it's encouraging. And awesome. then I can help her even like give her some examples of stories she could have told. Exactly. Then you're engaging in dialogue and now you're kind of like, you know, with your buddy working on it versus higher above, you know, talking down on someone. Um, okay. I was looking at the time. We are talking to you forever. So let us go into our reflection part of this. Phyllis, three words or three phrases that best describe you. Um, wow. So I would say um, I'm adventurous. I love a good adrenaline rush, whether it's at work, intellectually, um, or physically. Um, I'm, I would say that I'm a doer. Um, I'm not much of a talker. I mean, I like to think things through and discuss it, but I really like to get stuff done, um, sometimes to a fault. Um, and then I would say the last thing that um, a sense of humor is really important to me. I would hire somebody who has a great sense of humor over a technical expert any day of the week. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. So you have shared a lot, you know, to a little bit of a memory lane. Do you have a top takeaway kind of listening to yourself uh, on, on what you shared? Yeah, it's interesting reflecting on my life. We're all, we're all thrown, you know, life throws us a lot of curveballs. And, you know, and, and it's, it's how you deal with those and get over them. And when you reflect back on them, they're incredible learning experiences. When I think, I mean, it, it, it probably sounds like horrible to say, but getting cancer was a pivotal point in my life and I wouldn't change anything. I learned so much about myself, what's important to me. And also it taught me that I can overcome anything. You know, I mean, I just felt like, 
I was going to get through this and it toughened me up. So I think that, you know, as I reflect on, you know, my experience getting door slammed in my face or being humiliated at this New York City event or getting cancer, you know, all of these experiences, as much as they might make me cringe now, um, it's all, it's they all brought me to the place I am now. Um, they've all taught me a lot. So I, I really, it's been really fun going down memory lane with you. I'm reminded how many mistakes I've made, but you know, doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. You have modeled that. I have the biggest smile on my face, Phyllis. You are a superstar. I uh, I thank you for joining me, sharing so openly your journey. I really appreciate how you found your way to help business uh, be better, to make society better, to also have such a enriching family life yourself. Um, it's really, it's, it's great. It's really great to see. So um, you are a part of the solution for sure, my friend. If I can be helpful in any way, I am here. I'm cheering for you uh, and you take good care. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be on your show. Uh, we, will, we will be touching base very soon, my friend. Okay. Thanks, Molly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, okay. This is um, inspired by Phyllis. Here's my thought for the week, folks, from Nelson Mandela. History will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of our children. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Phyllis's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 